I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Tuesday, September 18th, 2018. If you haven't otherwise seen signs of a coming apocalypse, perhaps this will fill the bill. After almost two years of my relentlessly scrutinizing, critiquing, filing suit against, tweeting at, and otherwise immiserating the University of New Mexico's athletic department, a current Lobo staffer has now finally agreed to go on the record with me in a conversation. That seemed reason enough to launch a podcast. And so my guest for the first and potentially only NM Fishbowl podcast is UNM head men's basketball coach Paul Weir. Paul and I taped our two-hour telephone conversation last Friday. In it, we talked about, among other things, his former boss, Steve Alford, the beleaguered state of the New Mexico Athletic Department, my work covering that department, the economics of that department, the economics of intercollegiate athletics writ large, whether college athletes should be free to earn money beyond their scholarships, and the bad incentives which compel athletic administrators to make foolish spending decisions at schools like UNM. There's a lot of meat on this bone. Our discussion is presented here entirely unedited, and it was a discussion, meaning that for those who are only interested in what Paul has to say, you're going to have to slog through my thoughts as well. In any event, I hope you find this as something different, if not indeed something interesting. I certainly did. And with that, I give you Paul Weir. Paul Weir, welcome to the uh, the very first and potentially only NM Fishbowl podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, so I think maybe a good place to begin is just by way of background, explaining to our listeners why we're having this conversation and maybe specifically why we're having this conversation now. Because I launched my blog in late 2016 and I've written a number of stories and sent out a number of tweets about the, uh, the University of New Mexico's athletic department. And you are the first department staffer who has agreed to go on the record with me uh, in this forum. Though I've written numerous stories about Bob Davey, he has uh, at, at most sent me a written comment. He's never gone on the record. Frank Mercagliano, the, school, the school's SID, seems to uh, dodge every phone call I've ever made um, and on down the list. So um, I, I'll have you fill it in as you see fit or explain why, why you felt this was something you wanted to do. But I, the background of our, of our discussion now is last week uh, you had, or I guess on uh, September 4th, you had gone to a Board of Regents meeting and made a proposal to use some capital outlay money to jumpstart a project to convert some of the the suites in the pit into office space. And I, after reading about this uh, proposal in the journal, in the Albuquerque Journal, took to Twitter and uh, uh, I think promptly tried to savage you over this with a hashtag that Paul Weir has an idea. And I also, at the same time, filed an IPRA request because I think you had told the regents that you had, over the previous several months, 
um, broached this idea with various university administrators over email and hadn't gotten much, if anything, of a response. And so I wanted to actually see what those emails look like. So you called me um, and we spoke for 15 or 20 minutes um, about this and you sort of gave me your impression. You were under the impression that that call was off the record. I did not believe it to be. And we sort of decided to reserve those comments that you had said there uh, in exchange for having a larger conversation, which is this podcast. Is this a, is that a fair way of characterizing how we got to this point? Definitely. I think um, the, the way I interpreted our call was really no different than I think even the way that Sweets thing came about. Um, I went up there and had a very relatively extensive conversation with regents. Um, the president was obviously there. David Harris was there. Um, media members were there. And I thought had a pretty lengthy discussion about what I was, um, what my idea was about the suites, but also maybe the, the roadblocks I had run into with regards to um, the approval process or just even the decision-making process of what it, what it would take to even alter the suites. And then I, I felt from that, it really got kind of cherry-picked in some way across a host of different sources where it turned into Weir's asking for $2 million and, and all these other things that, quite frankly, really wasn't the context of my conversation. Um, and, and I think a lot of emotions and things came out you were among obviously many that, that were like, what's going on? Why is this guy doing this? You know, he doesn't know what he's doing, you know, whatever may have come with that. And then as we started having our conversation, I started kind of feeling the same thing. Like, look, like we're having a conversation right now and I'm, I'm explaining um, why I was doing what I was doing or, or the background behind it. And again, you may decide out of a conversation to say, well, um, at one point I said this or I said that, and that can kind of get taken out of context to a reader in, in whatever way. And I was like, you know what? I think a much more productive conversation would be, I, I didn't use the word podcast. You end up kind of coming up with it, but a much broader kind of on the record, let's just let feelings and, um, you know, greater conversation pieces take shape so that people can maybe understand the overall context a little bit more and that would include you as well you know i think i like many lobo personnel lobo fans members of the community want to know more about daniel livet and like why has he why does he do this you know what what is his agenda or or what is his motive or what is um spurring all this on and maybe it could be something productive you know i i, I think we both kind of talked about i, I didn't I didn't want to go into this and I hope you're not going into this with the hope of trying to make the other one look bad or, or prove a point. It was more about just having an honest discussion or conversation and then that way maybe more people uh, can be open-minded about things going forward, myself included. Um, I, I think it behooves all of us to just go out and, and have productive conversations and I thought that was a better alternative for everybody, not just Paul Weir or Daniel Libet, but people people to follow Lobo Athletics, either in a 
in a way that's against Daniel Libet or pro Daniel Libet or pro or against Paul Weir or Paul Krebs or, or anybody else, um, you know, maybe a, a really open discussion could um, drop some barriers and allow people to maybe have more transparency going forward about things. Well, I, I am delighted at the prospect um, and I, I share your, uh, your sentiment about this conversation. And I think, though I, I certainly have a number of questions I'd, I'd be keen to ask you, I'm, I'm happy for this to be a back and forth discussion. So now that we've cleared our throats with that, let's, let's dive in. I want, I want to dive in at least where this all began. Let's, let's, uh, let's tackle the sweet conversion idea insofar as anything well, we, more we, needs we to be said. We can also start with your with your line-by-line uh, line shots at me, too. I mean, we're more than yeah. welcome. Yes, I, 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 I will happily do that. So, um, uh, um, so let's... So. And, 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 I, and I say that and I say that in jest. I mean, just um, that's probably what precipitated the call because it turned into, you know, and, and, and again, you were probably doing that, that in jest as well, but it was an attack on coaching a Canadian junior national team. It was you know, why I do yoga, why I do analytics that turned into this just like barrage against Paul Weir. And I thought, man, like this is, uh, this is unhealthy. I need to call, like, I need to figure out what's going on here. Cause I don't, I, I've never talked to Daniel Libet. I don't really know Daniel Libet, but for someone to kind of be going at me on this over the Swiss, which is, which is fine at the outset like that to kind of, snowball into these other things like man I, I really need to call this person and figure out like hey what's what's going on here why why be why why all this other stuff is this something I'm not looking at the same way you are and it brought out a lot of other things that we talked about but that's even though it was the sweets to me what prompted me to pick up the phone was kind of those additional comments that I was just like whoa this is this is strong so I think I stand by all of the all of my tweets but I, I I'm happy to go through some of those other topics I raised or I piggyback to the uh, the sweet thing to uh, to see if perhaps I uh, I need to be disabused of, of of certain opinions of this but let let's start with the sweets and then and then I'll let you yep, uh, yep, take it yep. take it okay so since our chat last week the the uh, the journal's editorial board also um went after this uh yep. saying i think the headline was that you uh weir throws up a brick with sweets to offices plan uh, so i don't want to rehash much more of things that people have already heard you say has your mind at all changed since the last time you were quoted on the record which i guess was earlier in the week about this proposal uh, yes. And I don't, it, unfortunately, I think everything's shades of gray. I would say that, um, I'm still intrigued by an idea of, um, doing whatever we can to make, for me, my own self-interest is the basketball program or potentially use of the pit suites area. I wouldn't necessarily, I, I I think me responding to people being upset about turning the suites into offices, um, I think me taking that uh, level of maybe frustration or anger or emotion or whatever you want to call it into, well, let's just scrap it then and leave everything the way it is. 
I don't know, maybe I'm just not wired that way. I, I still feel like there's something there. There There's a conversation to be had. There's ideas to explore. So I don't want to sit here and say, look, this thing is, is cut and dry and we're done and we're not going to do it anymore. But I did tell Eddie, hey, let's just put the brakes on this for a while. Maybe I thought I did a lot of homework. I thought I researched a lot of other universities and how many suites they have or how many suites we've sold or what the revenue implications are. And I met with professors in the business school to get their thoughts from an economical standpoint. Like I did a lot of things where I thought I did my homework, but what I did not do was probably try and find a way to get more community feedback or more outside, um, like grassroots people's thoughts. And that's on me, you know, that, that, that's no one else's fault but my own. I think that came out as it came out. Um, so I think merging all that together is a little messy, but it's something I'd still like to explore. And now I just think I have to listen to that constituency way more than I had going into this thing. And if at the end of that, nothing changes and everything goes the same, then so be it. But I'm so um, it's a very long-winded answer. Um, yes, my, my, my stance on it has changed, but it hasn't changed to the point where I'm just willing to walk away and say, you know what, forget it then. If people don't like it or whatever, I'm just going to drop the thing altogether. Maybe there's still a way we could all win in all this. And if there's not, I have no problem admitting I was wrong. I made a mistake. Um, and and if, it, if it's because of you or the journal or whoever that could put me there, I'm not too proud to admit that. So, you All know, right. Well, let me. So let me try to maybe let me try to hasten you to that point. So the the reason why the idea itself it was less the issue than the symbolism of the idea, which is, I mean, taking just the context of the pit, which was this once historic basketball venue that over the last ten years has just become this boondoggle um, of of wasted money in one way, shape, or form. One is nobody actually knows what the price tag of the remodel of the pit is because the, the checks haven't, aren't, aren't going to stop coming for, for a number of years with the debt that's continuing to be paid to service um, the pit. So we have this $60 million figure, which is probably the floor of what this ultimately would cost. And then there was this whole promise of the pit originally that it was going, you know, the reason why everybody should get behind this expense of taxpayer revenue is because this was going to bring NCAA tournaments into the uh, into the arena, which had been lost for a number of years. Of course, immediately it was discovered that the the way in which the uh, the remodel was done effectively prevented an NCAA tournament from ever coming to the pit again. It's too small. There's certain space requirements now. There's certain wheelchair accessibility requirements now that the pit will not meet. And so this major selling point of it turned out to be a you know a lie or a or a gross misunderstanding by those who were who were um, promoting it and so into that money pit pardon the pun is was this idea you had which was this whole you know something that was a mistake to begin with as you or as you noted in in, in your uh, meeting with the regents or at the board meeting um, which was to put luxury suites at the top of it uh, in a state where there's not a lot of money and not a lot of people who are going to be able to afford luxury suites uh, and then further diminish the seating capacity by changing that into office space. Um, so I think it was just 
that alone, that in the in the whirlwind of shit having to deal with the pit, um, was just one more was just one more uh, kind of nettling um, proposal by somebody. Uh, and then it was this also in the context of the four sports being cut uh, in the previous month or the announcement of the four sports being cut and all this conversation about how there's no money in the athletics department and people need to save everywhere. And though there is this capital outlay money that you sp spoke of, the initial $150,000, you also noted that the full project as you envisioned it would be somewhere on the order of $2 million. You said you would try to get boosters to foot this, but that seems hopeful in a university where, you know, again, they're struggling to get boosters to contribute to anything that they would contribute to, to something that was potentially not an essential um, expense. So it was all those things were, in my opinion, was like, this wasn't just an idea. This was just a, this was coming out of the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and so, and th thus, I thought uh, I, you were you were deserving of uh, of Twitter ridicule. <laughs> I get it, and and in retrospect, that's exactly right. Um, I wasn't here for the pit remodel. I, I I got all the feedback afterwards about how controversial that was, and everyone's opinions on how that should have gone and what they should have done differently. And I think a lot of those emotions came out because that topic kind of came up again i was really just a basketball coach looking at it thinking hey this could make my program better and that's where it probably originated from and then i thought if i checked all the financial boxes which is let me go sit with an economics professor uh let me do research on other schools and sweet numbers let me do with all this other stuff that i was going to answer the whole financial component but i probably didn't do a good enough job of thinking more about the even next step of that which is the community which is who else can use that space how else that space could be used i looked at it as a binary thing it's either going to sit there empty or maybe maybe we could use them for offices whereas maybe I guess if you take a step further from that, if, if, if we're going to get into that topic, there's a lot of different possibilities for those that don't include my own personal self-interest. Um, so you, you brought up the, the other things that I then uh, mentioned in this context uh, on Twitter. Um, should we unpack this or do you want to push back you know, against on, it? I, yeah, you know what? We, we, we don't have to. I was mostly joking about that. Like, so, yeah, like I... I'd rather like whatever. Well, let, whatever one of the things I brought topics. up, right? One of one of the things I, I mean, the, I've written very little a bit, little about you. I think I've written two stories about you. Um, one dealing with the buyout of your contract at New Mexico State after the fact, and the other one early on dealing with um, some concerns that were raised by. Uh, staff, a athletics department staff, about a conversation you had had with players and the concussion protocol at UNM. And I think, sure. I think I, I don't remember, so we never ended up actually talking. I believe you ended up giving me a statement because I quote you in the story. Um, but I'd be interested in revisiting that and perhaps you would be interested in, in kind of 
unpacking that because of course this is a major issue which is athlete health particularly the concussion issue though it's most prominent in football you know i think everybody is is on guard or ought to be on guard about it um across different sports um would you like me to sort of set this up with the article i wrote or or do you want to yeah i i think you know um to me there's probably two parts of it one would be the story itself which we could unpack and, and discuss if you'd like really um there, there's a concussion protocol that uh, all student athletes will go into when they um are thought to maybe have been concussed we had an incident about a week prior with a student and i don't I, i'll be a little careful because i i don't know what i can and can't share with some of these things but we had an incident with a student athlete who knew there was a conditioning day knew that if he could um basically say he had concussion like symptoms he'd get out of it and joked about it and said i think i have a concussion i can't practice today laugh 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 and then it got into something serious well now he's told us he had one what do we do how do we respond and that kind of morphed into a conversation i have with the guys where i said like this is really serious stuff and you know you you have to be very serious about how you report your symptoms you can't kid around because you could potentially end up in protocol and be missing time and missing games that's that was the, the premise around what went on for a, a few days time and i believe someone around there maybe construed something differently i i had ironically enough when i talked about it with the team that was media day and we had several media members within 10 feet of my conversation with the team and after your story came out i called a couple of those members saying hey like is this story right because i don't i don't remember saying that and they supported me saying coach no like i i I don't think you kind of said that either, but I get how things can get moved from, from one thing to another. And in, in all honesty, I don't look back on that story thinking like screw Daniel Libet and he, he was out to get me and he buried me. You gave me an opportunity to respond. And quite honestly, I did the, the very professional email response that kept me out of it, but you know, did, did the PR response, and the only person I probably had to blame in retrospect was myself, because I could have picked up the phone, like I did on the sweet instance, and called you as a human being and said, Daniel, you're wrong. This is this is my take on it. This is our take on it. And then if you chose to wrote an article, maybe then I could have been disappointed. And I think, unfortunately, and, and I don't I don't know you per se, and I don't. That's part of what my question at the outset was like. I don't know exactly what your overall motivations are in covering Lobo athletics, but I went into it thinking you were bad. I went into it thinking you're out to get me. I went into it thinking, you know, Daniel Levitt is going to hurt me in some way. And I stayed away. I thought, you know what, let me stay away from this because I'll just give him a, a, a platonic email and move on to the next thing. And then the article came out. And I could have responded like everybody else and been like, screw Daniel Libet or all those other things that come up. But I, I, I reflected on thinking, you know what, Paul, you were the one that didn't pick up the phone and call. And that, that really, to me, was probably the last time I remember or I've ever seen you kind of cover me in a, in a kind of distinct way. And that's why when the sweets thing came up, I'm like, you know what, I'm not going down that road again. 
you know, he's already started to say some things. I'm going to pick up the phone and call. So the concussion story to me is important because that was probably the initial um, starting point of this. And then the sweets kind of became the point of like, you know what, whether everybody says I should call Daniel Libet or not, or what he's trying to do or not, I don't know. I'm going to pick up the, I'm going to pick up the phone and call this person and try and just have a, a real hopefully meaningful conversation and that's obviously led us to here let me uh let me just dig a little bit more into the substance of the uh, concussion stuff just to make sure because there was some unanswered questions that that lingered um so so your your characterization of this was a a mere misunderstanding of what you were telling players given the context of a player joking about feigning concussion symptoms to get out of having to do drills or running or whatnot. Um, but there was a couple of other nodes I had in that story. Um, one, the sources that I, um, I corroborated this with, or that brought this to me, um, expressed that this really concerned them. Uh, it, it particularly concerned the medical staff at UNM. Um, it was their impression that this wasn't a misunderstanding. And there was a couple of other things they pointed to that suggested it. One was uh, when you finally signed the, uh, the school's document acknowledging the uh, UNM concussion policy, um, you were hired, I suppose, in April, um, and you signed it sometime in November or late October. And that, to, 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 to my sources, that was an indication of your trying to f either fight the policy or resist the policy in a way that you weren't signing this document sort of uh, at, at, at first blush. Was that, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think without, I, I don't know how this works with regards to like names coming about and I, and I wouldn't want to even jeopardize potentially um, your sources or, or where because I, I have a very good idea like I know where that information came from and it only could have come through a specific source um, and I don't know I'm even just even from your perspective I don't know if going down this road would be well I won't um, say I mean in the story I cite uh, sources anonymously so I'm not going to confirm or deny yeah, sources I, you, you're you're not yeah. you, you can you can do whatever you, I mean it's you and I are not both reporters on the story. You're you're no, free no, to handle no. it however I, I you know, want. I know I know we're not, but but you know I think um, uh, I know that I know the conversation that's getting referred to, um, and me I, I asked questions about uh, the particular research documents that went into our concussion protocol, and I had researched several other concussion protocol policies at schools around the country that use different research. And I think the person that was involved in the research potentially took offense to that. Um, and I think that may have spurned some other things. But quite honestly, I, 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 I'm very open and transparent to anything you want to talk about. But I don't know legally with medical staffs and different things what I can and can't really go into great detail on. Understood. Um, so let me, let me I, ask you, let me ask you a question. You know, that's not me shying away from this. I, I, I uh, I, I just I don't want to get too in depth with regards to that part of it because I it gets a little complicated I think or messy at least even just for me as a as a professional. Did you last question on this topic? Did you ever talk with the previous staff 
um, your predecessors, including Craig Neal, about whether or not they thought the concussion policy at UNM had hindered had hindered them, had hindered the team during their tenure? Uh, Craig Neal, no. Uh, I, I've spoke, I spoke to Craig Neal the night before, or a, a night or two before I took the job, and then we texted a little bit, but I, I have not spoken to him um, in, in, a, in a quite a long time, and definitely not on this topic. Um, we have some current staff members who are here that were there before that we possibly could have talked about it, but not in that light that I'm aware of. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Let's, uh, can we begin with the, uh, with the kind of the beginning of your U.S. college coaching career? Sure. I believe that was Iowa, if I'm not mistaken, right? I actually started at a, a small school called Northwestern State University, which is in Louisiana, but I was I was there a li- about a year and a half, and then I went to Iowa from there. So you were hired as the administrative assistant um, under Steve Alford at Iowa during the 2005-2006 season, and then you were operations director the following season, 06-07, does that sound right? That's correct. So this was an interesting period of time for Alfred as well. This was the this was basically the end of his tenure at Iowa, um, which was uh, a, a, a difficult time for him. In 0506, the team actually did quite well. They went 25 and nine, but then they lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament, which was the third time that Alfred had a first. Uh, round exit from the tournament and then the next season which was sort of viewed I think even going into it as a kind of make or break season the team went 17 and 14 and didn't make any postseason play and then Alford sort of by my understanding beats the pitchfork the pitchforks out of um, Iowa City when he gets the job offer at UNM uh, and is sort of greeted as this incredible uh, get for UNM, and in many ways he was at that point. Um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your interpretation of, of what UNM meant for Steve Alford and how those last two seasons played out, because I know Alford is just a reviled name in Iowa now. I mean, the the feeling towards, I think, the collective fan base towards Alfred is, is characterized as one of hate, which is not always the case for coaches who leave um, or who have careers that I think you could say were decent, if not great, at Iowa. So unpack for me the, those last two years and then where you feel New Me- what, what you feel New Mexico meant for Alfred in terms of giving him a, uh, a, a place to a place to sort of rehabilitate himself in. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can comment on it from the standpoint of Steve and, and Alford, or I can take you through a little bit more. Like my experience was was very unique and, and a lot different. So, um, well, let's talk I about can, your I yeah can, yeah. Let's talk about your experience yeah, first. Yeah, like so, mine was was. Uh, really unique um it was an amazing two years um i i went there initially 
that, that administrative assistant was kind of like a graduate assistant position. And I rolled and I enrolled in a, a, a doctor program in sports psychology. And um, at the same time was obviously working um, for Iowa basketball. And uh, personally, I had a very interesting like two years there. Obviously I was, I was doing the basketball side of things and learning about coaching and, and developing and growing in that way. But on the other side, I was doing um, the, the studies and I was in, uh, it was the health and sports studies department, which had a, a very distinct group of professors, group of students and department um, that had issues with athletics with regards to gender equity, um, just the, the, the role of, of athletics and in, in, in the academic mission. And really for two years, you know, I was in classes with students and professors that were openly critical of, of me, of, of not necessarily me personally, but of what I, what I represented, a white male in athletics. And for two years, I, I, I listened to everything they had to Wait, say. Wait, what, what do you mean by, um, what do you mean by a white male in athletics? Um, I think obviously, you know, being a white male, um, in intercollegiate athletics, is being a part of the, the the dominant class, and I think you know being a part of you know going into study and and being critically aware, you know you question power, and and at the end of the day, um, white men are in power in college athletics, and that's something that a lot of different people are uh, not only questioning but fighting against. You so know, you, I, I assume I assume what you mean of, right. I assume what you mean is that the white men are the athletic directors and the coaches um, and the head coaches of the of the uh, of men's basketball and football effectively disproportionate to who actually plays football and men's basketball yeah and i think it even goes beyond that to be honest with you. i think when you look at just intercollegiate athletics as a whole I'll, you know, I, I think it, it becomes a, or it has been a white male preserve. And I think that the, the, the program I was in was really looking at it more from a gender perspective um, and, and women and women's rights and, and intercollegiate athletics. And I learned a, a ton about Title IX. I, turned, I learned just, I, and actually, let me back that up. I, I didn't learn then as much as I should have. I wasn't mature enough and I wasn't developed enough to really understand everything they were saying. I was working my butt off, you know, sleeping in the office, trying to be a young basketball coach. And then I was walking into these classrooms and just hearing people over and over again, question power, question intercollegiate athletics in ways that at the time I really couldn't quite process. But later on, those became some really important like seeds in my development that now the dissertation I'm doing my PhD on is about women in college sport. And so for me at the time, I, I, it was, it was a very important two years for me for years at the time. I didn't even understand because these professors and these students and this program that I was spending 25% of my time in was really giving me an outside perspective on athletics that quite frankly, everybody in athletics should at least hear even if they don't want to subscribe to it, even if they don't believe with every tenant that came across it, I heard it. Now, I only heard it from a woman's perspective. I haven't heard it from an African-American perspective. I haven't heard it from, a, from an income perspective. I, I haven't heard 
some of those other arguments, but, but it was a really good start for me to start to look at intercollegiate athletics, to start to look at being a college basketball coach in a different way. At the time, I didn't hear it, and that was my own loss. But I, I, it started my own kind of development. So that was going on on one side, and then on the other side was obviously the basketball part. Um, I wasn't there for Pierre Pierce. Um, that was, I think, the incident. Yeah, I think Steve that was right. That, that that began in 2002. Although I think he and I think he finally copped the plea in right before you you arrived on campus there. Yeah, and and quite honestly, I wasn't even aware enough to know to even start like thinking and asking questions. I was so mesmerized and grateful that Steve Alford gave me an opportunity to, to, to coach, that I was working my butt off every single day. And I look back on my time with Steve and like Steve, his wife, his family, they were nothing but terrific to me. I, I, I found him to be an honest person, a fair person, a very successful person. And, and I know that might not be other people's perspectives or other people's thoughts on how it went there, but he was he was the world to me. Now maybe that's because I looked up to him so much at the time. I never saw other things. Like I can't answer that, but I can honestly say I owe a ton of my career to him, and I learned a lot from him. I, what, I let me because have... let me ask you this then. So so obviously thinking about it retrospectively, what do you make of the Pierre Pierce incident now and Alfred's handling of it? You know I I think. Our world um, has changed. And when I say our world, I mean the coaching fraternity. I think that's football coaches. I think that's basketball coaches. I think that's any male-dominated area that we've all grown up in or been a part of um, creates its own perspectives on things. And that's with regards to sexuality. That's with regards to women. That's with regards to a myriad of things. When men get around other men, and it's predominantly men in a competitive, male, aggressive environment, I think perspectives can really get blinded. And I don't know if anyone in coaching ever knew that. I don't know if anyone in coaching ever told coaches that. But I think the lack of diversity really exposes a lot of weaknesses to any program, whether it's my program or any other sport or program that's kind of driven that way. I wasn't there for it. And quite honestly, I don't know a ton about what went on at the time internally. It was not anything I ever asked about or knew about. So I don't know what happened, but I've been around sports now long enough and I've been around what it's about to see how these mistakes get made and how they get compounded because of the lack of um, oversight that college coaches can have with issues that honestly they don't know enough about when it comes to the outside world. So, so I, I assume at least the listeners of this will be somewhat familiar with it, but just for just to kind of put a flag on on uh, on the Pierre Pierce incident. So, in in 2002, Pierce was charged with sexual assault. I think it was third degree sexual assault. Um, and was arrested the day of his arrest or very shortly thereafter Alfred just went to the mat for him and said he supported his player 100% um, 
and and kind of stood by him before the facts uh i mean b before there was any reason to exonerate him let's say um and uh and ultimately came that several years later or sometime later pierce was again arrested in a separate incident of sexual assault against a a, uh, a female um and uh and this kind of all came back on alford uh at at the towards the end of his of his tenure in in iowa and one of the uh the interesting things was so he gets hired by unm after the 2007 season he and neil both go to new mexico um and he effectively doesn't have to answer about the Pierre Pearson incident um, for the next six years. No one in Albuquerque, as far as I understood, ever asked him about this. No reporter um, or anybody. Uh, but when he goes to UCLA, when he leaves UNM to take the UCLA job at his introductory press conference, um, he's asked about this and is seems, by my lights, uh, ill-prepared to answer a question that he hadn't faced in some time. Um, and ultimately, he had to do some cleanup on what seemed to be a kind of dismissive answer uh, he had given. Um, but I, I, I would imagine that if what had happened at Iowa, to, to your point about how things may have evolved or changed, but what if, if what had happened at Iowa with Alford had happened now, um, he would have likely or quite possibly been out of a job. I mean, just the, the sort of unmitigated or, or unreflective support of a player accused of sexual assault, keeping that player on campus, and then the, uh, an assault occurring again. I mean, that could, that, could be a, that could be a career ender for a coach these days. And I will say, I don't think the, the same situation by any institution would, would have been handled the same way. And I think there's a human component to this. If, if a player of mine is accused of something and he comes into my office and, and I have a longstanding relationship with him and his family and I recruited him and I've come to know him as a really good character person or however you would want to frame it. And he says, coach, I swear I didn't do this or whatever. I mean, there's a human element to where you know, we, we would want to be supportive of someone that we've kind of come to care and, and grow to love in, in whatever way that may be. And I'm not, I'm not, um, I, I wasn't there, so I can't really comment on the specifics of this. But, like, I can honestly tell you, like, Steve, his family, uh, the people around them, like, they're, they're really good people. Like, from my perspective, they are great people. They treated me terrifically. At no time in my time at Iowa did I see steve treat someone improperly or in a way that i was like uh, i don't know like maybe steve's not a good guy like he, he was a man of faith he was a man of family he was strict he was disciplined and he would be hard on people he was very hard on me um and and i and i took that but i i i've never questioned like his character now does that mean he didn't make a mistake he quite possibly could have and and we all do but I, I never, I never would have taken that personally to think that made Steve like a bad person. Maybe it was just someone that, that made us made a mistake in the moment. Um, but again, I don't know enough about that situation to comment more on that that situation. I wasn't there, and and or, and nor know enough about it. So then, put in context, then as you see it, what New Mexico then meant for Alfred? Because by again, I'm, I'm sort of re repeating what I said before, but by my perspective. 
UNM was the life raft for Alfred. I mean, they, they came in and basically enabled him to make a lateral move or a conceivably lateral move um, at a time where he was likely going to lose his job at Iowa, if not right then, then maybe soon after. Um, and instead, he comes to New Mexico, which was downtrodden um, as a program at the moment, uh, and instantly gets a sort of hero's welcome and does well. I mean, in a way that he wasn't able to do in the Big Ten Conference, he does quite well in the Mountain West. I mean, I, I suppose if you're going to judge him by NCAA tournament performances, it's a very similar thing. But he, he brings UNM, which was in the doldrums, into a top 25 perspective at that point for the first time since Dave Bliss left um, and subsequently gets himself uh, an opportunity to then go off and coach at UCLA. So, wh what what is what does Alfred owe uh, UNM for for uh, that opportunity? Well, I would say I th I think there's you know you may call it a life raft, but I think every coach, I mean every everybody in any profession has to constantly be aware of their current job status and other opportunities. I mean, you're talking to the guy who left New Mexico State to go to New Mexico. So um, I think Steve, like any coach, um, is always looking at other opportunities, other places, whether it was leaving New Mexico to UCLA, Iowa to come to New Mexico, uh, Southwest Missouri State to go to Iowa, Manchester to go. I, you know, he's obviously made a lot of jumps along the way in his career. And I guess some could try and interpret it as a life raft, but really it's it's the life of a coach. It, it goes on um, all the time for assistant coaches, for head coaches. It's now starting to become that way for athletic directors. It's obviously been going on in football for years. When you get into like major college athletics and – what kind of goes into that everyone involved in it is is constantly looking or being a part of this like merry-go-round of movement it's a, it's that, a it's a mercenary business it, it, i guess that's one way to look at it. it the thing is everyone has their own like timing is of the essence if if steve is of a certain age um you know he, he may have made all those decisions differently depending on what was going on at the time or what's the current state of the athletic department you're in what's up with your ad is he coming or is he going how about your president how about the board of regents how about the team you have how about, i mean there's so many layers to these things that it, it's 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 hard to say Steve, Steve went from New Mexico to UCLA just because of this, or Steve went from here to there. Every coach has a myriad of things to think about when job opportunities become available to them. And to juggle all that and like dwindle it down to one or two things, I think is really hard. And it's, it's probably unfair to not only that coach, but other coaches who maybe move for a completely different set of reasons. You know, you, everyone has, you know, children or financial considerations or age considerations or geographic considerations. There's there's so many different things that go into these decisions. And some people narrow them down to, you know, Paul Weir is, you know, the worst guy ever because he, he went from a he went to a rival school. Well I I know and Steve I I, Steve, I, Steve I appreciate was just running from Iowa. You know, like 
I, 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 not that none of those are untrue, but like there's just so much that go into them. I think Steve probably, and I don't know because I wasn't close with Steve. I, I was the low man on the totem pole there. So, you know, I wasn't part of Steve's inner circle where they were going through all the pros and cons of, of making the move. No different than when he had to do it when he went to UCLA. Um, so I think it, it could get interpreted a lot of ways, but I'm sure deep down, Steve's probably really the only one that could lay out those 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 tenets behind the decision. Well, right. I mean, I, I, I to take you up on the two examples you give, I don't think anybody would say that Paul Weir is the worst person in the world. But I definitely think there's no question that Steve uh, Alford ran from ran from Iowa before he was about to get fired. But the, the, the reason why I, I feel comfortable saying it's a mercenary business uh, is because these moves that people make for reasonable self-interest are always accompanied by the same people talking about loyalty and these sort of highfalutin uh, descriptions they talk about in terms of their commitments to the jobs and the importance of these places. Um, and then, of course, you know, it, 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 as is often the case, the, everything is the commitment and the loyalty runs as deep as the next job offer that's, uh, you know, worth worth taking. And so, I mean, Alfred, right before he leaves UNM to go to UCLA, goes public with this comment about his, this big commitment on his part because of his um, of his recently signing a new contract with UNM and then bails out of that, you know, virtually the next day. And so it's this sort of like self-congratulations that the same of, of this of this industry um, to be so loyal and to be committed. And then all these talk, you know, coaches talking to, to players about their level of commitment, yada, yada, yada. And then they bail at the, at the site of a, of a bigger paycheck. And, and I think that is definitely an accurate lens to look at it. But but I think there's also some other parts to that that maybe w when you're looking at it that way, you don't think like the coaches didn't make the rules. You know what I mean? Like there's people above coaches. There's presidents, there's athletic directors, there's the NCAA, there's boards of, there's board of regents. Like there's people that can set up the rules however they want they've kind of set it up this way you know like coaches there was a coach in our league last year that got fired after three years you know and like there are certain things in place that unfortunately um i think make maybe coaches do things that could get interpreted exactly the way you're looking at it which i agree with but that might not be a reflection of truly their character that might not be a reflection of truly who they are they yeah i don't think it's a reflection they, they, I don't think it's a reflection they, of their character. I just think it's the reflection of their industry. I think this is exactly right. Exactly right. And I think, like I'm saying, like Steve to me was a really good person. And Steve cares about Lobo basketball. He calls me relatively frequently, and we have lots of conversation. And he picks up the phone and has helped me with people in the community that he knew that I didn't like. He has showed a real passion for Lobo basketball in a way that maybe wouldn't get characterized because he left to go to UCLA, but like, that's not the, not, that's not the case. Deep down, he, he had a, he had an amazing experience here, still loves it, still cares about it. And I know that, but that might not get interpreted by a business school professor who's going to write a, who's going to write a paper on coaching salaries and go, well, look at this guy. He went from here to there. And it's like, well, these coaches who, 
now are becoming the front page of those bullet points or line items. Like they're not, again, they didn't make these rules, you know, like they're, they're, we're playing by the rules and we're doing whatever we can. And I think where there's opportunities to show good character, hopefully the coaches are doing that. But until the rules of the games change and either the NCAA comes in or presidents come in and they start to make different policies with regards to hiring, firing, or what they're going to reward coaches for and things like that, um, we're, we're all backed into a corner where we just have to do the best with, with, with the way the game is set up right now. Well, I, I, want, I want to be backed into that corner, let me tell you. Um, if that's a corner, I'd love to be uh, wedged right in it. So, but let that. Look, I'm not. I, I don't want that to be construed as woe is me. I'm just saying that when the judgment gets passed, it's it's just coaches are, are are operating within a world with which they have to live in. So they're just reacting and making decisions based on that. And until those rules get changed, I don't know how much people want to start judging all them and their character for it yeah no and I, I again i don't think it's the individual's character but i do think it's the character of this of this world of this industry that um again and and to be fair i mean you could be a mercenary who at least admits you're a mercenary I don't feel like there's a lot of that that goes on. In fact, you're almost sounding an unusual note by acknowledging what I'm even saying is a is is a has some has some validity to it. Whereas most coaches get highly and and, and people in this business, as far as I've seen, get highly defensive when people start uh, scrutinizing. Uh, the compensation they get and and their efforts to get more compensation um, and, and and one of the reasons we'll dovetail into something here uh, is is the is a setup of this whole business you know this is a business where coaches and top athletic administrators are awarded these huge compensation packages um, they are the real beneficiaries of college athletics right now in any financial sense uh, and and yet we are still hashing this out and maybe this is going to change over time um, but the labor force the players uh, are basically capped at the limit of their of their scholarship and maybe a couple thousand dollars beyond the full cost of it um, so you want let's can we dive into amateurism sure so we're talking now during a present lawsuit that's going on, Olson versus the NCAA, which is being heard by the same judge who heard the Ed O'Bannon case. And though these don't directly address the validity of amateurism, they both kind of attack the central concept of college sports right now, which is that athletes, college athletes, should at most be able to receive a scholarship, room and board, the associated expenses of being a player on a college program and then some relatively de minimis extra money that kind of fills in the gap um i i find this i am on the side of people who think that amateurism is basically a code word for a unfair cartel um that there's no legitimate reason for this uh there's no ethical reason to for, for these rules to be in place 
Um, but there's, there would certainly be consequences if all of a sudden these amateur forcing rules were not in place. And one of the consequences is that coaches and administrators would probably be making a lot less money to do the same jobs. You wouldn't be having multi-million dollar contracts for coaches because there'd be ways that people could get players to come to certain schools much more directly by compensating the players uh, in one way, shape, or form. Um, so, I do disagree a little there. Uh, okay. And again, I'm not. You're you. I've, I've, I did read up on you, like so. I know you're really good at this amateurism stuff. Like, if we were just to live in a hypothetical world and just kind of dream something up here, and and you were to me, if a lot, if compensating players appropriately would take place. I don't think it would change the salaries of the coaches in those sports. Like I don't, if Alabama could start paying football players tomorrow, if the SEC said, Hey, football players in the SEC can make money. I think those players would make money, but I still think those SEC programs would be going out and trying to hire the best football coach they could. I think unfortunately what happens is all the other sports that are not revenue generating would just be eliminated from the entire process. That that would be, I think the, per, the, the, the teams right now that are, there's no doubt the coaches are the beneficiaries and the coaches are making millions and millions of dollars. But the, the other millions that I think we're talking about are going into other areas that don't necessarily bring anything back in return, you know, like, Robert Witt, who I think is, is actually consulting at New Mexico State right now, and he was the president of Alabama, said Nick Saban is the single greatest investment in the history of the University of Alabama. And I don't think that would change. I, I well, I don't, think, I don't think that would change, but I think, I, well, I, I, well, I'll say it this way, I think it would change in that he would be then the highest paid football coach, but he wouldn't be making $8 million a year. He might be making... $750,000 a year because that other $7 million every year that goes to him, you know, either if it comes through boosters or the school itself or in any, in his TV deal or his apparel, apparel deal, basically the only way that if you care about Alabama athletics, if you care about Alabama football and you want them to be good, and if you're a, a donor or if you're the state of Alabama, the only way you can invest into the program is either through the coaches who will recruit the athletes or the facilities. That's it. If somehow all of a sudden you could much more directly either give endorsement deals to players or just straight up pay players um, to come uh, to, to one school versus the other, that's a much more linear way of, of achieving the goal and all of a sudden the coach, the recruiter, um, who by dint of his charisma or his connections or his history with getting players to the NFL or whatnot in this scenario, I think that just becomes much, much uh, less of a, of a value, at least of an economic value. Um, so I I, 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 I I think there's merit to that, but then I think you'd start all over again. Like, hypothetically, if you said, okay, all the coaches' salaries you know, we're going to drop them all and it's going to go back into playing players uh, or paying the players, then it would just take one school to say, well, Nick Saban, instead of 750, why don't you come here for 950? And then it's just going to keep cycling and cycling and cycling. And I think that those money, like 
the investment into football to me will will would never change. It's the basically I think they. Would it's the recipient. It I think the recipients would change. They would pick it off from all the other sports or other things that were going on in athletics. They would just streamline it even more. That, that that's and again. Okay. I may be wrong. Well, no, but I I, I I actually I, like I actually like your point. Then so then what is holding up amateurism? I mean, why why then? Are, are, are we, are we, are, is, the, is the NCAA and the member institutions that sort of support the NCAA preventing college athletes who are on scholarship from receiving whatever co- other compensation they can according yeah, to the market? I, I think right now it's the, I think if you, from my perspective, if you look into the Power Five conferences, they're legitimately making steps to break away from the NCAA. They, they are... They are starting to do. They're starting to have their own voting powers. They're starting to make their own legislation. They're starting down that road. What the NCAA has is the billion-dollar-a-year March Madness television contract, which basically funds the entire NCAA and funds really everything outside of now what they're turning into the basically the college football playoff. And I think, however that ends up, I think there are people in athletic. Um, department, not athletic department, but people that have studied intercollegiate athletics that think the end of all this may be just the power five at some point saying we're going to go do our own thing. And I think at that point they may tackle it, but the NCAA is trying to kind of um, steer it and command it and kind of hang on to, to, to the way they currently have it set up as best they can. And in the NCAA's defense they, they've made a lot of Concessions, maybe not enough for someone like yourself. Oh, or, or they've made they've made peanuts. Of, yeah, they made peanuts. I get that, but even something like cost of attendance, even something like now allowing agents to represent, like they're doing some things along the way. They're just not opening up the. They're whole they're in self preservation mode because they know that at any moment this whole house of cards can come tumbling down, and so they're they're extending these just minimal um, offers of, of fairness, uh, knowing that, you know, in, in, in a just pure act of self-preservation. And, and, I, and, and I, don't, I think there's a lot of people that would definitely agree with that, but no one really knows probably where that's going to end up. Like what really does happen with the NCAA and where this stuff goes with regards to amateurism and then what, what, how powerful are these power five conferences really becoming because the money they're obviously generating on their own is substantial and at what point can they if they feel it's in their best own best interest to do something at what point are they just going to go do that and and live with whatever the consequences are and the relationship between those power five conferences and the ncaa is is an interesting one to follow i'm i'm I'm, would you fascinated of it as an educator, like just what, where will this go? Would you just purely on ethical terms, on moral terms, do you support the allowance of athletes to receive whatever compensation that they can legally, not permissibly by the NCAA, but legally under the laws of the of the country, receive? I mean, would that be a better, more ethical, more fair system? Without a doubt, I, I, anything to do with student athletes' rights, whether it's transferring and being able to play right away or 
going to what school you want to go to, going professionally, um, being able to earn money off the likeness of your image or your jersey or whatever. Um, I, I don't have anywhere near the power to implement that kind of policy, but that to me is, is, is definitely the fair thing to do. I think what a lot of people don't understand, it, it doesn't apply it applies to a very small percentage of overall intercollegiate athletes. It, it applies to, if you look at all the sports and all the students playing, it, it, this, this particular topic doesn't apply to almost two-thirds of, of the NCAA's member institutions. You know, like there are, there are a handful, not a, more than a handful, but... All, of all these institutions, if you put all the sports and all the individual athletes that go into this pool, there is an enormous pool beside them of athletes that this has nothing to kind of. Oh, do. I mean, for, well, that, I think I don't know. And that's that's who I'm like. That was kind of my first point. Like, that's who will end, eventually get affected by this, because if athletic departments have to find a way to pay the quarterback at Alabama, they're not taking it out of Nick Saban's contract. They're taking it out of another program well and again it doesn't have to be i mean look there's there's many ways in which athletes could be compensated uh, hypothetically they can't now that have nothing to do with the university or the athletics department providing that compensation it's merely the allowance it's it's a logo basketball player being able to do a tv ad and him getting the compensation for it and not the school getting the compensation for it it's you know, people people being able to take money from agents. If an agent wants to pay a player to ingratiate him uh, for potential future for future pickings, then why why shouldn't why shouldn't he be allowed to? Why I mean, wh- yep. what what is the moral argument about this? I could I could see why this would be an inconvenience or potentially kind of turn things up on its head uh, in the in the status quo right now. But I I, I have not heard one ethical argument that resonates with me why you know preventing people who have a a very useful and valuable skill um an athletic skill uh, from making the most out of it especially when the NCAA drools over itself um constantly talking about how it's here for the athletes it's all about the athletes uh and then they and then they basically tie their hands behind their backs until they go until until and if they can go pro no, and you know what? This is where your background in like amateur. I, I don't know the NCAA's argument. I got to be. I don't know exactly all the different reasons why to promote amateurism the way it is. So I don't want to. Uh, like you know more than me on this topic. There's some things we can talk about with college athletics. I'll, I'll talk till the end of time. But amateurism itself, I, I kind of share what some things I think, but I don't know it enough about what the other side is to defend it in order to really give a, a great answer all the way around. Okay, then let me, let me ask you about something that sort of hits closer to home. So um, your athletic director, UNM's athletic director, Eddie Nunez, has recently, uh, over the last couple of weeks, has, has been repeatedly talking about the need to invest and infuse more money into the athletics department. And he's saying this obviously in the same context that we discussed before, which is a program that's been in the red for a number of years and that has been uh, compelled to cut costs across the board. And so now the new AD or the relatively new AD is, is talking about how 
the school ranks towards the bottom of the conference in terms of travel and recruiting budgets in multiple sports, um, how it particularly is important to infuse more money into football. Um, so I want to, uh, now this is what Eddie Nunez is saying, I'm not going to hold you to what he says, but I, I want to I kind of grapple with this, I want to grapple with this um, in our discussion now because I don't see his point. I don't think he has an argument. I, I, I would say the last thing that UNM needs to do is spend or encourage the spending of more money in the athletics department, regardless of where it ranks in the Mountain West Conference. Um, but perhaps you, but perhaps you share Eddie Nunez's perspective more than you would on mine. I, I would say a few things. One, I think he's asking that in relation to where UNM is compared to their peers, you know? So in the Mountain West, the money received through the state or the money received through a university transfer or student fees or whatever it may be um, is down on those levels and, and asking people, hey, can, can we catch up to kind of our peers? We obviously, every, every school has their own local situational factors to consider but I don't I don't know if that's necessarily Eddie's job Eddie's Eddie's the athletic director and he's trying to do everything he can to make the athletic department the best it can be to me it would be up to regents presidents legislators whoever to say yes or no so I think from Eddie's perspective no different than me trying to move the suites he's trying to do what he thinks is best for the athletic department it's really up to those other people the state appropriations committee or, or you know these other people um around this to kind of say eddie no here's where the money's going to go and why or yes eddie we believe in you or we believe in what you know your rationale behind it and we'll give you x y and z but as the ceo um, of his department which is effectively how i view him in this context as the ceo of this of this business isn't it also his responsibility to not spend more money than he has or not be indebted to you know student fees or tax dollars yes. more i mean is that also not part of something that he as an athletic director must grapple with and he's not certainly unique in this i feel like every athletic director in the country views it as his his or her charge to get somebody to give them more money to spend and there's very little uh there's very little benefit at least perceived by athletic directors to have some rainy day funds you know not spend it yeah. down to the last possible cent and then some um but i agree i agree with that wholeheartedly i i i, I and i i would say that about anybody forget eddie even myself like i think it it, it we still have a day-to-day -day responsibility to the current budget that we have to the current um world with within which we live like whether that's me and my budget his and his budget i mean you, you i think there's obviously a responsibility to do that um, so I wouldn't necessarily absolve him of that just because he's asked for more money. And that's not me because I report to Eddie's. So I don't want to, I don't want to go over that. You know, I'm judging that. I'm just saying me as an educator, if I was on the outside looking in, I would say, look, like, that's great. You're asking for more money, but at least be able to, that doesn't absolve you from holding what you currently have 
um, and, and operate that accordingly. As well, and it's also the arguments for, for asking for more money. So, I mean, I, I feel like the Mount West Conference is just this poster child of a bunch of member institutions, most of whom are in some sort of state of financial distress at this moment, each using one another to justify getting in more debt. I mean, so UNLV is making the case that we need more money because SDSU, and UNM is making the case because you know that that they need that it needs to spend more money because of these other ones. Where it's like, yes, you are in the same conference and you compete at a conference level for NCAA tournament bursts or or bowl victories, but no one's looking at the fact, or it doesn't seem that anybody's publicly recognizing the fact that the member peers that they keep comparing themselves to are happen to also be in just a tremendous, tremendously poor financial shape right now, by and large. Sure. Well, I, I'd say two things about one, the word, ju I'm judged, Eddie's judged on winning and losing. And there is a correlation between spending money and success at, in, a, in a broad general sense. So I think if yeah. someone came in and said, hey, Paul, we're look, we're going to hire you as the basketball coach, and your number one thing is fiscal responsibility, and you're going to get measured on it, here's your metrics, here's your metrics, here's your bonuses, then I, then we would operate under that rule, and I'm sure Eddie would too. But, you know, Eddie's charged with having a successful football team, basketball team, other teams, you know, like that's what I'm charged with. It's like, you know, Paul, you have to go out and win basketball games. So I think until – whoever wants to come in, the Department of Ed, um, you know, state legislators, um, educators, whoever it may be, and say, look, let's change the rules of this game to fit our own local situational factors. To me, it's a little hard to kind of go at Eddie or, or Paul or whoever and say, man, you, you should be taking the, the high ground here and not asking for that. Well, because yeah. You know, saying that that, that yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. Look, I think the other component is 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 outside of an institution, and it's looking at the way in which professionals in this industry are incentivized in terms of their next job. So, for example, um, Paul Krebs, uh, Eddie's predecessor, who is uh, currently in a bit of hot water at the at the moment, oversaw a lot of spending if it was on capital improvement projects um, for the athletic department uh, or, or anything else. And I, I feel like athletic directors in particular get their next job in, not, in, in no small part based on how much money they were able to figure out how to spend in their previous job. If you look at the resumes or the online bios of athletic directors around the country, you see paragraph after paragraph dedicated to talking about this much money that they had that they spent at this pre previous school. And then they, you know, did this $20 million upgrade to the, you know, to the beach volleyball uh, uh, program and, and, and so on and so forth. And like this is becoming the way in which uh, athletic directors are, are, are sort of identifying themselves or or starring in athletics departments is just by spending a lot of money. Um, now, less to the extent of, well, I maintained a, a balanced budget, we didn't overspend, yep. we spent yep. wisely. Who's getting a job because of that? Who's getting, who's getting their next big job because they didn't you know, did the, do the capital improvement project that didn't make sense at their previous school? But then I would say the issue that like Krebs and Noon, and again, this is just me from the outside, is you've got 
Texas A&M and Texas and these Power Five schools, I mean, their their revenues are in the $200 million. So if you're aspiring to be an athletic director potentially at that level, you've got to show an ability to manage, uh, create, and be around those kinds of monies. You're not getting the athletic director job at one of those schools by saying, hey, we really trimmed our budget. Yep. And, you know, we really found these cost-effective ways to do things. It's like, no, like, look, we're, if you're at Texas A&M, you're trying to get ahead of Texas. And if you're at Oklahoma, you're trying to get Oklahoma State. We don't, we don't need someone in trying to make us smaller. We need someone in kind of trying to get us bigger. And that just ends up kind of, you know, circling its way down to the non-Power 5 level of those same administrators trying to demonstrate the ability to kind of do them. I completely agree. And so in that way, it seems... It seems a fait accompli. It seems like UNM and schools like UNM are constantly are going to be constantly dragged into debt because of just all of the incentives for the people who are stewarding those programs or those athletic departments to just continue to try to spend where there might not be the money to spend. I, I think when the Power Five really started to separate with the TV contracts and the legislation it's really put non-Power 5 football programs at, at a crossroads, and I think that's something that's going to play out over the next however many years and, and, and decades, however long it takes to where there's either like a middle ground there or like I don't know where that go- I don't know if anyone really knows where that goes. I think there's obviously people that think it's a waste of time and money to try and compete with those schools. I think there's others that feel like, look, there's Boise State, there's – other examples of great football programs that still, if you invest the right way, will be successful. But I think, you know, non-Power 5 football programs have um, a lot to kind of digest and grapple with as they as they move forward for sure. There's obviously disparities in basketball. There's obviously disparities in, in other sports. But the way Power 5 football is separating itself with regards to expenditures is, to me, apples to everybody else's oranges i i i agree well and, and and you mentioned boise state i feel like boise state is the one in a million jackpot winner that then convinced you know a thousand other people to go into debt buying lottery tickets i mean because everyone holds up now i mean in in, in a lesser extent you see similar things in basketball with gonzaga but boise state now is this is this goal that you know this this white whale that everyone is chasing, um, you know, failing to either acknowledge or realize that you know all of the programs that have fallen on their face, spending money they don't have in this in this hope of, of becoming the next Boise State, and it just so happens that Boise State uh, is is also a Mountain West Conference member. So I feel that that much more intensely at UNM. So I mean, you know, Nunez, I, I was watching him say this in a in another uh interview he was talking specifically about the need to infuse more money into football and one of the arguments he made was that um football is responsible for some majority share of the revenue that the schools in the mount west conference get through their conference affiliation um i can't remember what the percentage was maybe it was something on the on the order of of 80 some percent of the money through uh, conference affiliation comes because of football. Um, but of course, 
the Mount West Conference doesn't stipulate what member institutions have to do in terms of success rate in order to get that, that share of the revenue, other than Boise State and Hawaii, which doesn't get any of it, and Boise State, which gets almost double of, of everybody else, you can be a shitty football team or a ter terrific football team, you're still gonna get that same share. And so in some ways, the argument shouldn't be you should put more money into football, it should be you should put less money into football from a financial standpoint, because you're gonna get the same, you're, I mean, if, if, you, if, what's, if what you're really earning out of football is from conference affiliation, you're gonna get the same slice of the pie regardless of on-field performance. And I think purely from the perspective you're looking at it, like just that lens, I, I think there's a lot of people that would agree with you. The only to me thing that um, has to get taken into a little consideration with regards to football is it is a very, you know, um, college campus oriented thing. And I think it's, it's really hard for a school uh, at, at, at any level or even any level of leadership within the school to just say, you know what, like, we're just going to really de-emphasize football because it, it, it's, it's such a popular sport with regards to camaraderie and donors and alumni and school starting and school spirit. And I still think there's the idea that, look, if we invest in this, it can still be very positive for our school overall. It can bring students together and fans together and donors together and kind of fill that. Now, what all that means, I don't know. I'm not enough of an expert to know how that all like fleshes out with regards to level of importance, but I do think that's real. I, I don't think that's some misguided nostalgia. I think football and the power of football is very, it's real to me anyways. And, and I think that's part of something where people who think of it the way you do, like maybe that's a, a faculty athletic rep or somebody that brings that to the table, there's still that other flip side to the coin of whoa, whoa, whoa now, like let's not just do away with this entirely because hey, if, 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 if we can get this going in the right way, it's gonna lead to this, it's gonna lead to this, it's gonna be positive in this way, that way television exposure. I mean, there's there's so many different things football can allow and provide for a school that maybe doesn't always show up directly on that balance sheet. Yeah, I, I suppose. But I think at some point, the, the potential of football actually has to produce those dividends and, or, or it's just going to always be the potential of football. I mean, I went to the University of Wisconsin. What you're describing sounds like football at the University of Wisconsin. It doesn't sound like football at the University of New Mexico even in terms of like a community building uh, uh, locus. I mean, it, it, that's evidenced by who shows up or who doesn't show up at the games and, and, and the general feeling about football in, in New Mexico, I feel is that that's not what it is there. And, and basically because it's been, I think these things correlate. I think if you have a successful football program that is as meaningful to the community and to the, and to the campus as you describe or as you um, articulated there, it, it'll show up in, in it being at least able to pay for itself, if not also provide some revenue for other sports. That's not that's not happening at UNM. I've, I've said this and on. I, and I and I and I and I get that point, but do you feel though that's like a final answer? Like, does that mean you never try? Like, and, and I'm not, I'm genuinely asking that. Like, I, I I get that because, but I think and I think a lot of programs are faced with those things. Maybe it's 
it's it's the football program at Kentucky or Kansas or like you know there are all kinds of programs and schools around the country that maybe have a history of a lack of success you know does that does that mean that ever, your efforts are futile or or do you or do you try do you try to well I think it, yeah I, I think you know yeah I think it matter I, I think it, it matters what one means by efforts I mean yeah continue to feel the football team but you know the next time the a coaching search goes around you know i mean don't you know, keep keep the uh keep the head coaching salary in in perspective knowing i mean look you 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 know this as well as anybody having been at both schools new mexico state has been beating new mexico routinely in football in recent years despite having a far uh, a, a far measlier budget on this whole thing so you know the, the notion that you just have to keep throwing money when there's not the kind of significant amount of money to throw that that would automatically make a difference there's not 20 million dollars you know there's no there's no mega multi-billionaire booster who just has this pet interest in lobo football that's going to really be able to to elevate it so what we're talking about is is a few hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars a year in a football program um and I think the I think the evidence is in. I think you can win spending less. At least you can win enough um, for for what Lobo football needs to win by. Uh, and I and I pointed this out uh, on, on a couple of different occasions. I mean, Bob Davies run the experiment in terms of financial success. He had a two winning years, two very winning years, and this last year was a losing year. And financially, it seemed like the the program performed the exact same way. The gate revenue didn't didn't really improve in his in his winning years so what does that say about everything yeah i don't know enough about the numbers with regards to like what comes in from tv and what comes through from there like i don't know enough about what that return was on football um to, to kind of sit here and say i agree with you totally or that i that i disagree with you i think um it, it really is up to eddie in the in the department and the school to say kind of like to what you're saying earlier okay where are we going to invest and how are we going to invest it and that philosophy is something that probably everyone needs to be involved in not just daniel Libet and paul weir but whether it's whether it's state legislators that are that are obviously involved in things um from a funding perspective the school president the board of regents and you know, they need to develop a philosophy of, okay, we, we, we know we have a finite um, number of resources. How are we going to allocate those resources? What is our belief in football? To what extent do we want to fund or promote this? And then the same thing with basketball, same thing with other sports. And then kind of um, you know, present that, demonstrate that to the, the various levels of the community and either give them input and or once that's happened, say this is our philosophy. And and that way there there is no um, like room for people to be coming in and opining on different things. Like, hey, this is the philosophy. And if you don't agree with the philosophy, then those people in place can get held accountable for it. But I don't think like it's it's on Bob Davy if something if like I don't think Bob's Bob Davy's salary is on Bob Davy. I don't I don't think the investment in the football is a reflection 
on Bob or not. I think that's a reflection more of like the overall operating philosophy of UNM and its surrounding community of how much do we do we want to invest in football and or any other sports and or just sports in general. You know, like there's a lot coming up with, you know, I, I, I've read different things about state legislators and coming forward with more money or not. And like, that's a decision that they're going to have to make with regards to, okay, if there is extra money and it, where's it going to go? Is it going to go to athletics or not? And then if it does, um, where does it go within athletics? I think those are really big picture things that um, all these community leaders need to answer before they start getting into the details of where this money goes or what's going on with this sport or that sport or football or, or soccer or basketball and kind of nitpicking at them without a larger kind of framework that's been kind of agreed upon or at least um, demonstrated, it, it's, it's hard to answer those questions, I think. And that's why this thing seems to be moving in so many different ways. That, that's my just, again, outside perspective on it as, a, as, a, as, a, as an educator or, or student of all this. I, um, maybe I'm getting this, I'm reading this from, uh, from the recent experience um, of, or, or the recent story of, of you and the, and the, uh, and the pit suites, but I, I'm getting this sense of, of a man who's sort of chafing against the inertia at the university right now. And I'm, I'm wondering, since you came, <laughs> since you were hired, um, you, you've obviously come into an environment under a cloud. Paul Krebs, the AD who hired you, um, effectively resigned amid scandal and is now being investigated by the AG. Bob Davey was suspended 30 days um, after an investigation uh, into allegations that he interfered with sexual assault and some mistreatment of players. The state has uh, put the clamps on UNM in terms of its athletic department spending. The sports were cut. What, what, what is the stability of the department that you, that you uh, work in right now from your perspective? You know, I'm a basketball coach and, and, and I, I, I really wanted, and I, and I still want to have uh, a, a great conversation. I have to battle with this back from what I talked about my time at Iowa and that I spend as much time um, talking with professors or students I've gone to school with or people around college athletics. I spend as much time talking to them about things and hearing their thoughts about me or the program or the program within the department with which I'm in. And then I obviously have a job. I'm the basketball coach for the Lobos and I, I answer to these very same people. So I say all that because I don't know how much, um, I, 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 the last thing I would want to come across as critical to another position of one that I don't have, I answer to, and that's, that's their role, that's their job. I'm not, I, I have a, plenty of people armchair quarterbacking me. I'm not gonna armchair quarterback them. I, I would say from my perspective, I think the culmination of a lot of things that have gone on and played out publicly with the media um, with regards to how the world is 
very quickly changing with regards to auditing, transparency, accountability. I think that's changing in every field, and I think UNM is no different. And I, from my perspective, it's really made people, um, and not made people, but I think it's affected people into being afraid or uh, of fear to maybe make decisions, to do things, to act upon things, because they're worried about the consequences and they're worried about um, how it may look in a Albuquerque Journal editorial or whatever it may be. And I, 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 I don't think UNM is the only one doing that. I think this has been going on over the course of the past decade on Wall Street in the banking industry, in education, in a myriad of fields are just undergoing uh, a heightened sense of auditing, scrutiny, whatever you want to say. And I think UNM and athletics are no different. And I think, unfortunately, what gets caught up in that is sometimes when there's things that aren't going to be controversial and they are easy to do and they are the right thing to do that we don't move forward on them because we've put so many kind of protocols or things in place that things can't move forward. And I think that to me from an outsider is what it kind of looks like right now is that UNM and, and our athletic department in particular is kind of taking you know, heat on, on so many different levels from so many different ways that it's almost just kind of um, paralyzed us from being able to like take action and initiative and move forward. And maybe that's rightfully so. You know, maybe there's been enough mistakes in certain areas that athletics shouldn't have the autonomy or the independence to go forward and make decisions. But unfortunately, that means when there are good ideas and there are good decisions, you kind of can't move forward. I know that, that that's a long answer, and I'm not I'm not here to comment on like specific people that are either current or former employees because I don't think that's my place. I'm really the basketball coach, and I probably shouldn't be commenting on any of this. But I'm I'm commenting to you more as a as a as an educator as. I'd love to get into higher ed one day. Like that's why I've gone to school this whole time. That's why I'm trying to get my PhD. That one day I would I would love to seg my my career into into higher ed in some way, shape, or form. So this stuff fascinates me. I, I have an interest in it. I, I want to grow and learn in it. And that's more my thoughts on this. This isn't because as the basketball coach, quite frankly, I probably shouldn't be commenting at all. Um, it's not my place and nor do I probably have the expertise to do it. But as a person that loves discussion and loves these kinds of conversations with people that I have, I'm, I'm having it with you right now. And that's probably like the best I can do without, um, you know, without without getting yourself in trouble. <laughs> probably so, but also it's not the basketball coach's place, to be honest with you. I, I don't think it's the basketball well, I mean, coach's place. Well, I, I think I think that's a large. I think there's something to be said, kind of, or, or to be discussed a little bit more largely about that, because you're different from your two predecessors in this job, in terms of, in terms of sort of your your multiplicity of ideas and where they are in the scheme of your job title. I mean, my impression was that Steve Alford 
both at Iowa and at UNM, had very little interest in the sort of extracurricularities of his job. He wasn't, he wasn't about glad handing with boosters. He basically wanted to coach and be left alone with the other things. And Craig Neal appeared to like the kinds of social dynamics, you know, off the court, um, but they didn't really ever pay dividends for UNM. I, he didn't actually shake the can uh, in a productive way to get more money from some of these relationships he had established with, let's say, Governor Martinez. Um, but you, by contrast, seem to be, uh, and I, this is going to sound more harsh than I, I mean it to sound, but kind of all over the place. I mean, you, you have a lot of different ideas and a lot of different interests and things that would potentially go outside of your lane. And I wonder if, it, it, I wonder if one hand you sense some pushback on, on that. On the other hand, it is kind of your job in a way to find ways to make the program as financially stable as possible. Um, and some of that, you know, a, a lot of that or most of that has to do with how your team performs on the court. But I suppose some of that also has to do with things that are off the court. Yeah, I would say, um, I don't know if there's really a question in there, but I No, that was say... that was just a long comment. If you, if you want. To... <laughs> I mean, I do you do what what's the balance between staying in your lane and uh, and doing the things that you think you you ought to do because no one else will do them or no one else will broach that, them. That, that's a it's gr a great question and me and my agent had a very long I've had several conversations about this where he and anyone in my profession would say don't stop doing that stuff Paul you don't need to do that don't um, don't talk to Daniel Libet don't do this don't do that you, you have more important things to worry about focus on your job win your games do your thing and I guess that's where me just trying to be the authentic person of myself maybe wants a little bit more than that out of my job and, or my life. And I like to immerse myself into some of these other things. Um, and maybe that will get me into trouble. And maybe me kind of thinking or wanting to do more that gets out of my lane is problematic for my bosses or my superiors or whatever it may be. Um, and that's something I have to think about as my career unfolds. That, that's something that I probably have to balance and weigh and talk to my uh, athletic director and talk to my president and make sure that I'm still at least um, being a proper employee and not, not doing any harm to the university, not doing any harm to the department. But at the same time, I don't know, my, my life experiences, my academic experiences, it, 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 it it's hard for me to just turn off, you know, having discussions about things that involve a, a, a greater, a greater good to the university, um, because I, I, I enjoy that. It, my, my PhD is in higher educational leadership. So like, I, I, I enjoy this and I, and I like being a part of it. And, um, I like at least learning from it, um, for my own kind of, I don't know, self-interest, but my own growth. Uh, so, but you're right. I think that's a great point. It's something that I have to think a lot about of like, Paul, let it go. Like, don't, don't worry about it. Like, just go do this, just go do that. Um, but there, there are parts of me that just feel some kind of an urge to at least try and grow from it, be involved in it, 
develop um, help, maybe, but even if it's not help, at least, um, I, I, I keep saying the word learn, but like just, just learn and grow with it. Do you have any questions for me? An hour and a half I into think, it. And I, yeah, I know. This is, and I'm, 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 I'm late. I got to run to some things here. But I, I, I would, I think me and a lot of people like to know just what, why, why you took on this challenge of, of UNM athletics. I, I think not only maybe like the root cause, but just what initially brought you into it would, would definitely be one. And then I'll add on two because maybe you can put it into it. I think there's a lot of people that maybe feel as though what you're the way you've done it um has also been personal or maybe hurtful to like people and like how you would respond to that sure well you might have to remind me of the second question uh, after i get through the first but the um yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've said this in, in some interviews before, but uh, I'm happy to sort of give you my, my origin story of this. I have long been interested in college sports, originally as a fan, originally as a Lobo fan, uh, growing up in Albuquerque. I think I had my baptism of sorts after writing a story a number of years ago about Bruce Pearl, who I was working at a magazine, the City Magazine in Milwaukee, and Bruce Pearl was then the coach at UW-Milwaukee. UW and I wrote this just obsequious um, uh, narrative story about him where I tried to tie in his Jewish, his Judaism and his family story in a way of, of, of trying to show how that was a metaphor for his, uh, for his coaching journey up to that point it was a it was a story i'm actually embarrassed about um now uh so i, I write the story now of course the 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 saga of bruce pearl prior to then was he was an assistant coach in the 80s at illinois um under uh oh, i'm sorry at at, uh, at iowa under tom davis when he uh got into a recruiting battle um, for a player named Dion Thomas, who was the uh, maybe the number one player in the country. He was out of Chicago, and his recruiting battle was with Illinois, and he accused Illinois of trying to bribe Thomas, and it caused a whole NCAA scandal over, over uh, impermissible benefits, to readdress that topic. Um, and Pearl was sort of cast out of the coaching fraternity in some respects because he he made accusations that uh you're not supposed to make uh, against another uh another brother and uh and had a hard time finding a head coaching job for for many years after that when he was considered to be primed for one um around that time and so i i sort of wrote this into the story talking about how you know, here is this man who, like his Jewish ancestors, you know, had to wander through the diaspora and this just terrible Mitch album-like metaphor. Um, and anyway, that was the, the long and short of it. So some many years later, um, I revisited Pearl in a deadspin piece after he had gotten in trouble at Tennessee uh, with the NCAA and sort of took another stab at the whole Bruce Pearl story up to that point where I was much more scrutinizing of him and how uh, 
and how wronged he, he actually was back when he was uh, an assistant at Iowa. Uh, and that got me thinking more broadly about the NCAA and the rules and college sports and the norms and the bromides and the lines we all hear. Um, and it kind of converted me to be much more cynical about college athletics. Um, and, and yet I was still a Lobo fan. So I, I had this sort of kind of contemptuous idea of college sports, but then I had my pet team, the Lobos, who I continued to root for even when I went off to another school for college. Um, and uh, I sort of kept these things in, in, in a kind of uh, hypocritical balance there. And then eventually I thought, you know, if ever I really have a nice break from the pain work, which was covering politics at the time, I want to I want to really cover I want I want to take a shot at covering college sports where you cover it purely as um, you scrutinize it and you consider it purely as a, uh, a public institution and you don't care about the on the field performance you don't care about the scores you just question it at every turn because it's something that is just not done about college sports I think most of the people who cover it sort of accepted on its face as either an inevitability or a virtue, you know, and, and it's report, you know, the negativities are reported, but they're always reported as if this is some sort of outlier or this is something that's wrong. But I wanted to sort of examine it at, it, at its core. And so, you know, I'm one person who has no experience covering college sports in, in any meaningful way. And so I'm not particularly sourced up or knowledgeable. So I took the one program that I actually was relatively familiar with, which was UNM, which was the team I rooted for, um, and thought, okay, well, at least I know who the cast of characters are. I knew who the basketball coach was. I knew, know who, knew who the AD was. I sort of knew some of the broader issues that were facing it. Um, and let me just give it, a, give it a run. And I thought I would do this for maybe about a month. I, I uh, launched a WordPress blog, and I started to make some public records requests. And... Um, and I was like, I'm just going to start poking around in places where people don't tend to look and question things that, you know, reporters who cover college sports don't tend to question, at least at the micro level. Maybe they will they question it at the macro level. Um, and then UNM was the gift that kept on giving. I mean, and, and to the extent that I've been nettling it for the last two years, it's because of all the stories that have tumbled forth. I mean, if you know, the, the spigot never turned off. I mean, so it was first... This, the, uh, the Wise Pies deal at the pit, and then it was the Scotland trip, and then it was Craig Neal's coaching saga and some of the controversies of that, and then it was Bob Davey and the investigation and the allegations against him and, and so on and so forth. And, and the supposition I, I made, which I still believe is, you know, in, in many respects, I could have done this anywhere, um, that if you crack, if you open the hood of many programs similar to, to New Mexico, uh, to say nothing of the larger programs, you would find these sorts of issues. Um, and I think that says something pretty core about the whole kit and caboodle, um, which is that there's a lot of issues that don't have a good explanation. There's a lot of inconsistencies and hypocrisies. And there's a, there's a, there's a larger question about how orthogonal college athletics is to higher education. Um, and, and, like, and you mentioned a couple of times when I've raised points, perhaps this is the perspective of, you know, of, of a uh, 
I can't remember the, the exact position, you know, but, but basically a, a professor or somebody and, you know, coming from a particular point of view. But I, you know, I, I don't think it should just be limited to the faculty representatives. I think these are, insofar as we're going to say we're covering college sports journalistically, we need to sort of examine examine the whole buffalo here um, with, with a set of new eyes. And, and that's what I, uh, I think I've attempted to do it at, uh, in covering UNM. And I, and I would say my, the only response to that would be, I think there's a lot of people at UNM or that see what you say about UNM to think it's only UNM that's, that's, that operates this way. And UNM is this, you know, individually flawed model that needs, you know, a complete reset where UNM is operating the way every other athletic department in the country operates. And your attack is, it may seem personalized to UNM right now, but it's really not. It's to the overall model. Well, I, yeah, I think the larger, I think the larger point I've, I've attempted to make is one a point about what is journal what does college sports journalism actually mean um, or what I what I would model uh, journalism in the college sports realm to look like um, I think some of the stories are unique to UNM I mean I, I I think while I while I just said that I think if you if you open the hood anywhere you're gonna find these sorts of issues I think you know in, in some cases UNM has uh, has produced more than more than some, and and to the larger point, the response I would give to that response is, so what? I mean, no one would make that argument in any other context. No one would say, well, you shouldn't cover, you know, you really shouldn't investigate um, political corruption or government corruption at a particular municipality because we know that you know government corruption is is to be found in anywhere you look. You know, I mean, you know, I live in Chicago right now, which is notorious for uh, corrupt government officials. Um, you know, I, I don't hear anybody and I, I don't hear the community expressing outrage that, you know, we're, we're focusing too much on this and this is making Chicago look bad when, you know, we know what goes on in, in New York City or New Orleans or, or any other place that has uh, corruption issues. So, I, I you know- And, and, I, and, and, I, and I totally, agree with that premise i just don't know if all the readers and followers and people around this have that same understanding i think they some people walk away from reading or seeing what you do and think wow like unm's the worst place on earth you know it's this and it's that where there may be some some mistakes that have been made and there may be some flaws in the model but it's the same in every other three, uh, 350 other Division One schools. They may not have the same specific issue or thing you uncovered, but they'll have a, 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 the same myriad of problems and inaccuracies or inadequacies or however you want to kind of chop it up. I don't, I don't know if everyone that reads and, and sees your stuff has that. Well, and again, and and just to be clear, I'm not trying to leave them with that impression. I think UNM, I mean, I wrote this mega story about just the politics surrounding both UNM's athletic department and the campus, um, addressing some of the issues about the culture of of governance and leadership in general at at UNM. Um, I think UNM has specific problems that are worrisome beyond just 
you know, well, everybody has their has their baggage. I think UNM has more baggage than it ought to, um, a lot more baggage than it ought to. So, so yes, I mean, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll split the baby with you. I will, I, I, I and I, I say this in any opportunity that I, I have to discuss it. UNM is not the only place with problems, and uh, my dedicating my time to covering them is not is not because they're the worst of the worst and they deserve it compared to other universities. That said, um, we found, you know, I've found and other, and other reporters and, and uh, government agencies have found uh, plenty of reasons why UNM is not, is not uh, performing up to uh, the standards that should be expected to it uh, or expected of it. So I'll split the difference there with you. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, and look, I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing knowingly to an audience of people who are not going to want to read this. I mean, I've, I've made this comment it, when I covered politics, you would reliably have, you know, any story that was critical of an individual or a party um, would reliably have half the readership um, pleased by that article for purely partisan reasons. So if you write a story about a Republican legislator who um, has some sort of uh, 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 has some sort of mark on on him or her. You know, every Democrat who reads that will will celebrate it reliably, and vice versa. Um, that's not the case when you cover college sports in the way that I'm doing it. Almost nobody who re who's interested in UNM or who cares about the Lobos wants to read what I'm writing. I mean, I I I have like a, cons a constituency of of 12 people um, plus a handful of Aggies fans who perhaps are the partisans in this uh, in this example. So so I'm, I'm, I'm totally recognize that, you know, I, I'm not here to to uh, to be loved and I'm not here to make people feel good about themselves. I'm here to uh, the good I'm doing is to, to sort of open eyes on some of the specific things and maybe on some of the broader questions about what does it mean to have college athletics at UNM? Um, what has it meant up to this point, and, and what might it mean going forward? So, that that's not a that's not a and, and to and to the people that say you've gone above that and personally attacked them or ruined their career, like your response would be what? Well, who specifically whose career I, have I? No, nobody. I, I'm just talking about a, a general narrative. I, I yeah, I mean, I, I, though I can be rather barbed, I, I, you know, and, and if I, if someone can point out an example where I, I've, I've somehow overstepped my own, uh, my own uh, standards for here, then I will uh, happily acknowledge and, uh, and apologize, but I feel like I'm I though I'm barbed and though I write about people and though I write critically about what they do in their roles, I don't think my my reporting or writing has been ad hominem. Um, I I think I've I've addressed exactly the subjects. I mean, look, you know, I am I am I'm scrutinizing and I am observing and I am reporting on people's jobs so it's hard not to you know in some ways for that not to also be construed personally um but i don't think i'm i've set out to just savage people um as human beings beyond just how they are as human beings in the context of these jobs got it and if you could wave your magic wand and you know 
change one to two to three things that in your eyes would make UNM athletics a more um, either credible or just kind of respected place, what would those things be? You know, I, 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 I will, I don't really have prescriptions. I, I, that's just not my, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a advisor. I'm not a uh, consultant. I'm a journalist. I, I, I'm, I'm certainly gravitating to, to places in my reporting that I think um, need to be addressed, and I, and I, and I don't think I, I'm alone in those. Um, but, but yeah, I think as a reporter, I, 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 that's where my work stops. I'm, I'm happy to point out things. In fact, I'm happy to point out the same things over and over and over again. Um, but I, I, you know, I, it, I don't, I don't have any prescriptions for, for improvement other than don't do what you've been doing that clearly hasn't worked, um, as exemplified by whatever reporting I've done and, and whatever other reporting other people have done. So I'm, I'm going to dodge that, uh, I'm going to rebuff your, uh, your, your offer to, uh, to, to weigh in on that, on that front, because I think. You know, I mean, and where it would matter to me wouldn't be significant to to maybe the the health of the of the department. I mean, what what would matter to me is is more transparency and more um, openness in communicating publicly and in and in uh, and in dealing with those who scrutinize. I mean, I I've obviously dealt with one brick wall after another, and that's not surprising. But you know, I I think. I think there's a relationship between transparency and good governance um, that people at UNM are constantly not um, take paying heed to. And I feel like at every turn, you know, after whether it was the Scotland trip, which seems to just be the, the ultimate example of this, um, or any number of other things, the lesson doesn't seem to be absorbed that hiding what's going on and trying to prevent people from seeing things is not the recipe for getting past this difficult point at, at, in UNM's athletic history or UNM's um, campus history. And yet that seems to be the default position everyone continues to assume after the latest scandal is, let's hunker down, delete some emails, not turn over some IPRA requests, um, you know, hide stuff off at the UNM Foundation and, uh, and, and and call it a day again, and I, I'm, I'm waiting for, I'm waiting to see when rock bottom is on that, on at least that front where people, um, let's say beyond you in this con, in this podcast we're having, um, are are willing to to sort of open up the books and subject themselves for for scrutiny uh, a little bit more willingly. Well, though I don't speak on behalf of UNM by any means, I can really only speak on behalf of myself. I hope this was at least some step of a willingness or, or a philosophy to try and do that. I'm not perfect. I am far from the person that should be a spokesperson for UNM. And this may be, ex, you know, extrapolated into something much, much bigger than I even anticipated. But um, I don't know. I, I, I guess. Uh, well, I will. Yeah, no, I, I look. That, it's something that could be the, the something that could be a start of something productive. I appreciate. Look, I, you you were the you're the first person. You're the first person. Though though many people have uh, talked to me on background or off the record, who work at UNM or in the athletic department, you were the first person to uh, not only accept this this uh, this offer to, to to propose this offer. And so I um, I appreciate it. 
credit to you on that no, front. I, I, uh, I, I came on to obviously slightly clear something up and quite honestly face the music a little bit and just kind of see what other people think about me or about us. And again, I, I can't speak for everybody. I probably talked too much with regards to what my own personal opinion is, but that's really what I was on here as. I was on here as Paul Weir. I, I, I'll be announced as a level basketball coach. And you may even promote it that way, but quite honestly, I, I, I came on as a, as a grad student and, a, and a, a whole host of other things above being a basketball coach. So um, I, uh, I, I appreciate the opportunity and hopefully you did too. And we'll see where this all leads in the future. All right, Paul, I thank you and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, take care. Well, there you have it. I would again like to thank my guest, Paul Weir, for his time and willingness to have this lengthy conversation. You can find an accompanying story to the podcast and all of my Lobo content at nmfishbowl.com. If you would like to give me your two cents, metaphorically speaking, you can do so by emailing editor at nmfishbowl.com or raging at my Twitter handle at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. The music you're hearing was provided through a Creative Commons license by the Spanish folk band The Freak Fandango Orchestra. The song is called, appropriately enough, Requiem for a Fish. Until next time, if there is a next time, I'm Daniel Libet.